Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Jack Bradich. Jack, it's great to see you. We've just gossiped for a few minutes, but mm-hmm. other than that, it's been a long time, and it's really wonderful to have the chance to, to talk. Tell me what's going on for you these days, what's dynamizing you, troubling you, interesting you. Sure, and uh, yeah, in another setting, yeah, this will be mostly reminiscing about Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, but and cultural studies then. That might pop up. But uh, yeah, so um, the things that are sort of like uh, animating me right now, after a series of years where, I was, where I've been studying the far right um, and the uses of digital technologies and um, the forms of organizing in the U.S. primarily, although some of it's international, um, uh, which culminated in my book on microfascism came out in 2022, Lately, I've been thinking about what have I learned about the left or about anti-far-right movements based on what the right is doing, what I've learned from studying the right. Um, I gave gave a talk on this at Union for Democratic Communication a few months ago, and so that's still kind of lingering with me. Um, And I would say a couple of things about that. I mean, and the reasons for that are that, um, for one thing, as we've known, the right studies the left all the time, right? And they learn from us. Um, they learn from cultural studies. We know that the you know <clears throat> that the recent attention paid to somebody like Christopher Rufo, the kind of far right intellectual. Um, and there's a great piece by Alberto Toscano called Gramsci in Florida um, about him um, and about his understanding and appropriation of Gramsci um, to, uh, to make sense of how the right will move uh, through culture and through institutions and through organizations. Um, so so that to me is already something to, to learn that like the things that we were talking about in cultural studies for decades about what it means to create a counter-hegemonic block to, to organize the, the long march through institutions. Um, the right has learned not just only recently, I think now they're, some of them are just very explicit about it. Um, but so it's studying that, but at the same time trying to understand what's happened um, in media and communication studies and its relationship to cultural studies, at the same moment that the right has really embraced culture, even though they often talk about it as metapolitics, we could talk about that. But um, uh, it's the same moment, I would say, in you know, the mid 2010s, that in relatively speaking, our field, media and communication studies, culture has become marginalized in favor of key words like information. Uh, like platforms, um, so so that the ways to think about politics, uh, subjectivation, society has been run through a series of um, ways of thinking again about the platformization or, or or almost like governance and policies of technologies and the ways that can be organized around something like information and misinformation, disinformation, um, to the I think uh, to the detriment of um, a focus on culture, which the right has taken up. Um, so I don't think those two things are, they're not causal, obviously, but it, to me, it's an interesting thing to see that those things are happening simultaneously around the rise of the alt-right um, uh, and uh, and Trumpism, at least in the U.S. I think it's certainly true that for a long time, the politics of spectacle has been appropriated by the right Despite its love of the military and the police, it can no longer be seen as a movement of law and order because it's not interested in justice in any sense, including norms of legalism. 
uh, it's not interested in the separation of powers in terms of conventional constitutionality and democracy. And its notion of democracy is simply about who wins elections and nothing else, whereas that's an important symbol of democracy, but it's actually only part next to having a relatively independent bureaucracy and a relatively independent judiciary. And since the Democratic Party abandoned the working class in the United States, it's been absolutely clear for decades that the courts are the only place of redress for working people because they don't have political representatives other than, you know, the squad uh, and people around Bernie Sanders. It's just not there. So I do think that you're onto something very important there. On the score of communication studies, it seems to me that although Jim Carrey was on the pretty soft left, really a social democrat, but that he and Larry Grossberg represented in the United States the cultural wing of communication studies, and there's not been anybody of their moment to replace them. Uh, the good old boys that run communication studies in the U.S., more or less accepted Jim and Larry as their counterparts or people who could be representative of the cultural left within the good old boys. And I don't see anybody being that kind of figurehead that the good old boys could accept. Now, of course, in communication studies, good old boys are no longer all white. They're no longer all male. But they're, they're people who, are, who know that Marxism is shit, political economy doesn't matter, and culture's unimportant. So apologies yeah. for that, lead, that leadership fetish, but what do you think about that as one minor explanation, perhaps? Uh, yeah, I, I think I, I think so. I think I think in, in terms of sort of you know, sort of leading figures, um uh and both of those folks that you mentioned, uh, Carrie and Larry Grossberg, um, were also sort of Illinois. People, right? So it was quickly how, you know, how quickly we can go back to that moment. And, um, I mean, I guess I'll say, you know, one of the things that happened, you know, it, when both of those folks left Illinois, and now we are getting to Champaign Urbana, um, is a, a way to think about, well, what was going to be a way to continue the project of cultural studies, um, without not necessarily even just sort of, uh, stars or famous figures, but ones who are going to dig in and fight um, for something, right? Um, uh, and that was going to—that was something that I'll, the, the pugnaciousness of both of those um, folks, um, uh, I think, is, is, is worth noting. Um, uh, and so, you know, one of the things we did. Uh, so I showed up to Illinois in like 1993. Um, I think Larry left. Uh, James Carey had already gone. Larry left a, a year or, or so later. Um, and so a number of us would come to kind of study cultural studies or study culture there. And some of us to work with Larry, some of us not. Um, uh, but, um, we kind of formed, we self-organized, right? We formed reading groups, uh, out of which something like the Foucault cultural studies governmentality book came out. Um, uh, and you were, uh, you were there for a lot of that. Toby's, uh, you know, coming over to, to Illinois, um, uh, having discussions with us about governmentality. Um, so I think, you know, the hope was at least that, okay, well, if enough of it could be sort of self-organized, um, then, then maybe it would, it would, it would already had enough of a hold that it could spread. Um, now I think what happened is some of that ended up being true. If you look at some of the folks who came out of that, 
era. I mean, um, we have, you know, we're in nice positions, we get published. Um, at the same time, the organizational component that you're that you are also noting, right? Um, uh, I think what happened in in places like philosophy, theory, and culture, the division in ICA or um, uh, communication and critical cultural studies and um, at NCA. I mean, for one, some of that became more rhetoric oriented. And I have, you know, some of my best friends are rhetoricians at the same time. Like there's a certain way that rhetoric uh, um, uh, incorporates uh, cultural studies that um, isn't always as sort of grounded um, in in everyday life and in practices, mediated practices. But I think um, uh, what I've seen lately, to go back to you know the question of how this some of this is transformed as a reviewer for some of these for some of the journals associated with these uh, associations um, and those divisions for as a reviewer for the conferences. Um, what I've noticed is that things that would not pass as critical, you know, a decade or two ago are now coming to the critical, uh, you know, divisions um, uh, because maybe, the, you know, they, they might be just like discovering what moves uh, people towards right-wing populism. Okay, I think that's an important, you know, uh, way, a question to ask, but the modes of asking it um, and the modes of inquiry don't always lend themselves, again, to, to what I think what you're saying, which is like an, or a predisposition to being anti-Marxist, to being a kind of um, a reduction of culture. And what I would say, and this is the provocative thing I think that that I've, I've hinted at in some pieces, is like, it's a, it's a certain version of a state form of thought when uh, the agenda, the framework for understanding um, how politics ought to work or how it works in terms of uh, subjective transformation is no longer a question of ideology, uh, but instead, for instance, that's one, or propaganda, but instead it's it's framed as disinformation, which itself is embedded in state U.S. state funding um, and a state discourse around external enemies. Russia with with uh, Russia Gate and then more recently with China, but there is very specifically one could trace how disinformation becomes a key word as Obama leaves uh, office um, and embeds it into a national defense act as something worth funding and worth studying. Um, and I think so. I think there are a number of, of, of things. Something that we didn't have, like leaders, but at the same time, an instant uh, way of the way that media communication studies. This is not new for it, but how its agenda now its critical agenda is almost being shaped by um, certain kinds of policy oriented or, or I would say state oriented uh, modes of uh, thinking, maybe even carceral um, uh, modes of thinking. Yes, I, I guess when I was thinking about Jim and Larry, I was thinking about people who mainstream communication studies people could trust if those guys wrote a tenure letter for someone. Mm. people who are also good at translation devices to explain, to justify how somebody on the left culturally could have come from a field that was legitimate and coherent, uh, the sorts of things that biologists and chemists and economists want to see. There's a body of knowledge. This person adheres to it. They do slightly different things. This is how they fit in, Right. And that capacity of translation, I think, is tremendously important. I hear what you're saying, I think I do, about the lack of critical edge. Uh, it's virtually impossible now for me to spend a lot of time looking at those journals 
or going to those conferences, I'm outside that world now. No one's very interested in what I have to say. And I'm not very interested in what they have to say in many cases. Uh, so I feel for you doing that reviewing. Um, and I think it is a, a bit sad, rather like, you know, I, when I speak to lapsed political scientists uh, and they tell me that I'm right in saying there's no politics in political science, when I speak to progressive sociologists, there's no society in sociology, as it were. And in communication and cultural, uh, communications part of cultural studies doesn't have the questions of subjectivity and power that once dynamized it, or so it seems to me. And most of all, there is this mythic central orientation. Uh, basically, cultural studies within ICA and NCA and AEJMC and this unfortunate alphabet soup of U.S. associations, International Communication Association, American Education, uh, Association for Education and Journalism, Mass Communication, National Communication Association, really is the same as the New York Times. Uh, in other words, um, there's a thing called truth. Uh, the middle class once had it. Uh, we know how to convey it. But the middle class and whatever is the working class is being denied this access by the horrors of populism, yeah? And mm -hmm. that is where there really is a lockstep between the Democratic Party, the bourgeois media in general, and liberal, as in liberal politics, education in the United States. And it is a, a sort of shocking failure, I think. And it's no wonder that these entities, absent some notable exceptions, fail to speak to working people as broadly construed. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That um, the way I've been thinking about that um, is through what Matthew Lyons and some others who've been studying, who've been doing anti-fascist studies for some time to call the three-way fight, right? That like there are moments where the, either the state or some version of the liberal centrist component of the state will take on anti-fascism. We'll, be, we'll try to um, become the ones who fight off the right. And that puts, you know, those who are non-aligned with centrist or liberal state-oriented modes of leftism um, in, a, in a quandary, because we also want to stop the emergent fascists. Um, and, but at the same time, you know, not cede that to a series of carceral logics and institutions that are going to ultimately, you know, um, turn on um, the ultra left or the Marxists, they already are the anarchists to, to do that. So, um, so yeah, so that three way fight for me has been something I've been kind of working with for some years. And I, and I think about it as in, in terms of what I call two wars of restoration that were happening also simultaneously. One is the more obvious kind of reactionary um, right wing one to restore a mythic past um, uh, to, to sort of revive um, heteropatriarchal white supremacy um, uh, as a kind of origin story. But then this other one, which I think is like consensus liberalism of the 1950s, the, 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 the counter to it. Um, and that came out, you know, with the kinds of focus on, on Russiagate and from that moment where like patriotism in the U.S. at least, right, became a defining way to think about oneself as a kind of, you know, mainstream left actor. One had to be um, uh, nationalistic, um, uh, uh, and, and in a ways that really resembled, to me at least, the, the Cold War 
um, rhetorics of the the anti-Russia. And so so I think there the 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 quandary, though, is sometimes like I, I wrote this piece called Civil Society Must Be Defended. And it was a critique of the kind of panics over misinformation and the panics over things like Russiagate. Um, but now, you know, after having written that, oh, well, that easily can be taken up by the very right um, or folks like Matt Taibbi now or Glenn Greenwald, right? A whole series of, you know, intellectuals in that kind of um, uh, in, the, in the public media who are themselves sort of realigning um, with the worst forms of the right wing work. So anyway, so to go back to, yes, I think there's been a failure. And I think that's one of the things that I've learned is, is the ways that that kind of centrism has, steep, has seeped into the political orientation. And then again, that comes into the analytic frameworks and the methods and the, the concepts like, like, uh, propag again, ideology, like who's talking about misrecognition anymore. We could be talking about, if you want to talk about a miss, Let's talk about misrecognition, not misinformation. Well, you know, what, what you're saying, Jack, I think is very powerful. I was very struck how getting on for a decade ago, suddenly for the center left and much of the left, the FBI became good. The CIA became good. Big science became good. Anything that appeared to be capable of arresting the onslaught of the populist right was deemed acceptable. And uh, I think that that is, whilst I, I get some of that, particularly the faith in big science, I find the other stuff really quite appalling. And the the scaremongering about Russia troubling um, at the same time as for people living in Northern Europe, um, this shit is real, as a lot of them put it, right? Mm -hmm. But that is not to, to endorse the Russiagate hysteria that you allude to. And to me, it's very similar to the Hillary Clinton campaign advertisement in the primaries in, 20, in 2008, when she had the phone call ringing and could you trust Barack, Barack Hussein Obama II to be the person to answer it? Because <laughs> after all, he is what he is, let's say, right? I mean, the implied racism in that and just the, the Clinton's uh, continued control over the Democratic Party, I think, is, is emblematic of this problem. And then when I think about so-called misinformation and I read about fact-checkers going on and on and on about it, where the fuck were they in 2003? Gee, not too present, as far as I could tell. Right. <laughs> no, ex exactly. It's like you know, the, the, sort of this sort of great awakening uh, to, to, um, uh, to, to, to truth-telling and facts, um, uh, meanwhile, exactly. I mean, there's been a long history of understanding um, influence, persuasion, uh, propaganda, uh, you know, uh, but now it's like th that's only done, you know, in this discourse by the by the enemy or a.k.a. the malign actors, which I've only really learned recently um, is it's like a, a fairly standard term now. Right. Um, um, I always thought that was funny because I was like, oh, bad actors. When I started hearing that, like that. It, like academics researchers were saying like well we're, we're studying bad actors and i'm like well okay um you know all jokes aside about you know like um uh, uh you know uh reality tv shows but the, the idea that somehow um the world is now some lipmanian division between like we know the good and the bad um uh and we're just so so to me that became like it became clear to me it's like oh what really presides over this is uh, constructing enemies 
who gets to construct them? Um, what's the, the the discourse around the us and the them? Pretty classic, also popular notions of the popular, um, which I think what I'm hearing you saying too, which you know, which I really agree with. I think there's been an there was an abandonment of the popular to some notion of populism by um, by intellectuals to a certain that somehow right wing populism was a kind of uh, that it was redundant or something that there was no there were no other forms let's say of populism um, in the you know in the last fifteen to twenty years or fifteen years I would say the ways that populism sort of gets targeted as only a problem I think exactly is what you're saying is is, is a symptom of the way that the Democratic Party became the technocratic party um, in the 80s, thus abandoning um, uh, the working class, thus abandoning a notion of a kind of um, larger um, or, or broad appeal um, to, to the working class. And instead, you know, putting its uh, putting its wagers on an emerging, um, you know, whether it's Silicon Valley based or some kind of technocratic um, emergent industry and and therefore the, the class that was going to be able to um, uh, support them um that that yeah that left a vacuum um and so the right as usual will we'll find its ways into these, these jack i wanted to ask you about a couple of your books if i could mm -hmm. uh, and first going back 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 as commentators in baseball say to the work on conspiracy because yeah. when i was a teenager and in college conspiracy theories was the stuff of the left uh, yeah. We held them, and at the time, although we held a lot of them, we were also sceptical because we believed that often what we were seeing was incompetence rather than planning. A lot of that was blown up by the Church Committee and others in the U.S. with reference to the CIA's role in, in foreign affairs. Nowadays, in the time since your work of really just about 20 years ago, I'm thinking, the conspiracy theorists seem to predominate on the right. Can you help us think about the idea of conspiracy theory, where you think it might have some good things to say and be legitimate, where it might not, and what sort of work it does, if you like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I've had to kind of, it's one of these things that like, it probably almost started 30 years ago as a dissertation project, as an idea. And I thought I left it behind um when the, the book came out in 2008 um so years after the dissertation i thought i gave it up um comes back to haunt me all the time right because because uh because of some of the questions you're precisely you're getting at which is like to me is like how did it move from being something that in i would say in sort of as a cultural studies language in the language of Stuart hall and larry grossberg uh and gramsci right articulation like it it was a way of, to me, a kind of skepticism or suspicion about how power works, uh, a series of narratives, even research into uh, the, the ways that power operates, um, either at sort of everyday levels, not everyday, but sort of like operational levels, such as assassinations um, uh, and and corruption to broader questions of control. So so those things are fairly open ended if one really wants to investigate them there. They are open to articulation in that classic sense. They could be left-oriented, they could be right-oriented. So to me, the 90s were a moment where this articulation was still possible. Um, uh, I'll tell you how the, 
this might get at a question about how I even do things. Um, so the moment this appeared to me uh, as, as a potential topic was I was watching Oprah Winfrey one afternoon in Champagne, um, and a, a guest appeared on there, John Mack, who was a, um, a Yale psychiatrist who had just written a book called Abducted about alien abductions uh, and how we need to take them seriously um, as experiences, not just as symptoms, but as experiences. So I was like, wait a minute, what, what is happening here? A, an Ivy League trained psychiatrist is writing a book about alien people's experiences of aliens, and it's on Oprah, and Oprah is the one who's hosting him. So there's something about, again, the popular in that moment, daytime TV talk show. And this is the same moment that The X-Files is really kicking in. Um, uh, and so I'm like, okay, there's something happening around conspiracy theories and the popular, and in terms of popular culture and how people might be attracted to and trying to figure this out. So to me, again, this was a relatively open question. Um, although throughout the 90s, we saw there's some ways that the right very much took this up. Um, uh, Oklahoma City bombing, Timothy McVeigh, New World Order, black helicopters, that sort of thing. Um, but um, but there was still a kind of glimmer of populist possibility in those that I wanted to preserve at the moment where the left was kind of identifying itself. And this is, again, the Clinton era, too. So you you can see how this might be. It's like an alignment with the state. And the problem then, the key term was anti-government. To be anti-government was a problem. Um, and so that, to me, was a kind of already setting in place a way that uh, to to be a leftist, to think about the, the hopes that were still attached to the Democratic Party in the U.S., one had to be anti-anti-government, um, in which case, okay, that then leaves open this um, uh, this gap for the right to take over conspiracy theories, and which they which they happily did, which uh, which also would happen with populism. So to sort of wrap up this part of the story, which I think is almost how this continues to haunt me. So so I wrote the book, came out in two thousand and eight. Um, I moved on to other projects. Um, occasionally, I, I get asked to say stuff about it. But um, just like four or five months ago, I was uh, contacted by SUNY Press, uh, by my, my my editor from there. I haven't I hadn't been in contact with him in, again, 15, 16 years. And uh, it was like, Jack, um, don't you want to, how about it's time for a, a re revised version, a second edition. It's a hot topic. It's, you know, and I was like, I can't. Um, and here are the reasons why. <laughs> and partly it was like, like if, if I mean, this is this is going to be a little you know, self-aggrandizing. If the 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 argument in the book had been taken seriously, um, we would not be in the situation we are today. That is, in that book, I question whether conspiracy theories as such exist. What is the investment in calling something conspiracy theory? Are there other ways to talk about these suspicions? Um, uh, maybe it's best if we remove that from the lexicon and then figure out our politics afterwards um, and how we think about knowledge and connected. Anyway, so I, to, to me to rewrite it wouldn't just would just not only require a whole new set of examples, it would be a different argument. Um, uh, other people have taken up the book and done interesting things with it in the Trump era. So I'm like, I, I, I don't need to do that. But it was partially, it's like why we write books. Sometimes if the book doesn't make the impact that it's supposed to, like I, I can't imagine rewriting it. I mean, I, I have thoughts about it, but um, uh, but to rewrite the book um, as though 
this time it will be different. <laughs> you know, like I, but I Jack, know, I could... you can't be suggesting that it was an accident that you and your cohort landed in central Illinois wheat fields in the 1990s. You don't, you're not suggesting you weren't anally <laughs> penetrated and uplifted by well, us beyond and above all of us, surely. Well, you know, I, 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 I do, I, only, I can't exactly remember how ah. I did, right? In Urbana. So, the moment uh, when but, the ship came down in the hyphenated city, right? Yes, you can't remember, right. can you? But you've got no. to, But to be serious, I appreciate what you're saying. And it is interesting how that term used to be used to denounce the left and now is used to denounce the right. Mm-hmm. And there are moments when <clears throat> the things that are being described are horrifying like the claims that there are no mass murders in the United States, yeah. uh, for, for instance, where, whatever term we use to describe that tendency, right? misrecognition would be, would be one. But there are horrible things like that and horrible things. You know, one, my older daughter's just become a mom. She can't take her newborn to see her friends because lots of them are anti-vaxxers and the baby who's not yet ready for vaccines could catch terrible diseases really quickly and easily as a consequence. So there are real things there that we both know about that can cause considerable harm and do, but that's not because they're necessarily about conspiracies. It's because they're about the misrepresentation of knowledge, the state of knowledge, and a misarticulation of knowledge such that it loses its popular component. And I think that's one of the reasons, going back to Jim Carrey, why the reputation of journalists is so low in the United States. And that's in part due to not only all the lies about wars and lies about the economy and about politics, but also due to the destruction of local journalism and the fact that people in small towns and and in suburbs, neighbourhoods, don't know that are journalists, whereas they used to see them at church, at synagogue, at baseball, at parent-teacher associations, whatever it might be. And now there is no journalism in front of them. It's a totally foreign object located in Gotham, right? (laughs) And so I do think that that lack of connectivity, which can apply with high intellection as well, uh, makes for this lack of faith in traditional forms of expertise, along with lots of other factors. So I, I do hear what you're saying, Jack, and I think it was a valuable book, but I understand not wanting to go back there because it, yeah. would be, it wouldn't just be adding a few words here and there. You would have to deal with a rearticulation that's occurred that's exactly. quite dramatic. Yeah. Yeah, the conjuncture changes. So it's like this was written for and about really the, the long 90s, as we might say, right? I'd say the 90s up through like 2004, um, with the 9-11 truth movement and the kind of 9-11 conspiracy theories um, that I still think were the last sort of gasp of having a potential populist, um, you know, uh, articulation. Um, and uh, But yeah, no, so it's, uh, these books are of their times as well as having some um, some things. But yeah, can I, can I just pick up on one thing, the, the local news component of that, which I, I've, yeah, I've been trying to think through that as well. I know a number of my, Colleagues and friends are really focused on that too, and I and I wonder, yeah, that from what you're talking about is then is not just like uh, yeah the 
the information that comes in that news, like which is most of the time people want their high school sports stories or you know something from the local, but it's the it's the connection to the journalists themselves or the or the or the ones who are making those stories that um, that people would see. And um, I'm thinking, what has sort of replaced that? And I've been thinking lately. I mean, some work is coming out now about these sort of neighborhood-based apps like Nextdoor and Neighbors and Citizen. I mean, those are the I think the big three in the U.S. Um, but these things are like really, I think, redefining and recomposing what it means to be a neighbor, what it means to be local, what it means to be part of a neighborhood. And surprise, surprise, I mean, the ways that those have been organized is through fear, uh, surveillance, because um, they're connected to things like the, you know, the ring, the Amazon cameras, the Amazon based like uh, surveillance cameras that people have on their doorsteps. Um, people, you know, at least at least here in Philly, and I think I've seen this other in the U.S. at least, the kind of panics over package theft on one stoop or one's porch and how that becomes now the, the kind of um, the circulation of images like, uh, have you seen this person? I've lost this this packet. Like, I'm, I'm a victim of. So the ways that that has now created a, a kind of citizenry, literally in the app citizens, which is about surveillance, right? Citizen app um, and uh, neighbors, which is about watching out for your neighbors, but by watching out for, you know, um, those who don't belong, right? The classic versions of it. And, and then constant sort of like, well, these also become ways that at least in Philadelphia, what I'm noticing on the next door apps are ways to talk about progressive district attorneys and progressive mayors and why the problem is, not enough law and order, not enough crime. You can't, you're not even safe. You being your property or your the thing you bought is no longer safe, even on your stoop. Like it's not even the streets are unsafe. It's like your porch is unsafe, which is like the new Gerbnerian like model. It's like the, the hostile world has now is literally on the doorstep because um, uh, cameras have caught it. When I arrived in the United States, <laughs> I first encountered the words together, neighborhood watch. I was just so <laughs> horrified, yeah. frightened, because it's a, a matter of honor for me never to know my neighbors. I regard <laughs> it as absolutely crucial that I know as little about them as possible, right? <laughs> Even when I lived in NYU housing, I was scrupulously uninterested in almost anybody anywhere near me. Don't want to know, <laughs> you know, as much as possible. Classic New Yorker. That was great. Yeah, I know. Like, yeah, that, was, that was a very good. Also, yeah, I also lived in New York for some 14 years in a, in one building. And, you know, um, uh, yeah, but, but just <laughs> not really. I mean, greetings even would be would be strange. But, uh, but, but so I, I see that the, the, the appeal of, you know, um, you know, I, I have needed some things from my neighbors now that I have a house in Philadelphia, but, um, uh, but, um, and, and I was encouraged to join next door. I'm like, okay, well, I'll just see what this is about. And, but yeah, no, it's, it is, it, it, it's the new version. It is um, neighborhood watch um, now sort of seen as also the place where you can share, you know, your lost cat uh, uh, and your found cat as well. So, um, so there, there are, you know, little joys and hopes um, around with the, that uh, part. Know, when, I, when I moved to Madrid, Jack, one of my first tasks was to get a cat because uh -huh. my younger daughter is not allowed to have pets or a big television, two things that I like. So my unique selling point was very large screen and pussycat. But 
uh, it's very bureaucratic here, just as the Civil War never ended in the US and the Spanish Civil War never ended. So, in fact, the Inquisition never ended here. And when I filled out the requisite online work to apply to adopt a cat, because now, fairly recently, you can't sell dogs and cats in pet stores and so on in Spain. It's against the law. So you have to adopt them. And that makes sense because so many of them are abandoned. I was, uh, you have to fill in things like your salary and your marital status, how many people live with you and so on. And I was deemed not to come from, to give a literal translation, an appropriate family by all the refugees in Madrid. And it was only through an otherwise appalling blind date that I found out about a WhatsApp group out in the boonies where there was a couple that at any one time had 23 rescue kittens that they met in the street and lifted to go back to the wheat fields of the 1990s. And uh, I went out to the boonies and was interviewed and turned out the, my other, my rival to adopt never turned up. So a week later I got my pussycat, but it's that sort of story where I can see the value of some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in part because it worked for me against a state that just rejected me as a potential uh, fellow person or fellow animal with a pussycat. Do you know what I mean? And one oh, can yeah. see that. And there, are, I mean, that's just one personal story, but there are lots like it where you're deemed by the state not to be acceptable, but you find a way. Uh, the trouble is when the other side of the coin, which is this surveillance. So, uh, Jack, we've got mm-hmm. a, about a quarter of an hour left. And I had a couple of questions for you, after which I'd like to invite you to add or subtract to or from any of the themes we've mentioned. If there are things that we didn't emphasize, as you might have wished, or new topics you want to talk about, great. So my first question going forward from the conspiracy work is to the microfascisms book, a very provocative concept, an interesting one. And help me out in a boring way. What the heck is fascism, and then what is microfascism? Yeah, I would, you know, uh, I, I mean, it's not that I was, oh, it's, you know, it's so com- complex that I can't even, you know, speak about it because there's a whole wing of fascism studies, right? And that's right, sort of just even had to like dip my my toe into, and I was like, okay, well, I can't go into uh, all, but so so I think for me, what I was most drawn to by it by some of the uh, the works that I was that I was reading, and that was even coming from those uh, those who were looking at uh, sort of anti-colonial figures who were saying like like Aimé uh, 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 César César I can't remember that. You're right. so César 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 yeah Aimé uh, César um, uh, who was already saying like look uh, um, these are some of these techniques, these things that are happening in the interwar period in Europe um, are things that we've been experiencing um, in the colonies. And um, and later others have sort of picked that up. Um, uh, Kili Mbembe and others sort of talk about the ways that, you know, this was kind of, you know, uh, Europe, uh, the blowback to Europe of its own colonial techniques. So, so situating fascism um, not as simply the kind of models around uh, Italy, Germany, and uh, some degree Spain, right in the in the interwar uh, uh, or between World War One and World War Two, let's say um, period. Um, 
uh, was something that immediately sort of drew me uh, in to think about, like, uh, to get out of that version of it. But I think for me, the, the, the key was to try to understand when people were asking whether or not the alt-right was fascist or not. And so I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe, I don't know, um, does it matter? But then what, what got to me was, uh, again, the role of culture in the ways that um, um, uh, that rather than think about fascism as, as an existing sort of institution or state formation, um, uh, what is it that precedes, um, if we'll say precedes, or what infuses it um, that people have in the past, you know, looked at religion or looked at forms of masculinity for it, right? So anyway, so, okay. So um, uh, at the same time, to go back to this uh, uh, idea of metapolitics, Metapolitics is a is a word that people like Steve Bannon um, uh, and others on the on the right and all the alt right deliberately use. They would say politics is downstream from culture. So for them, culture is something they call metapolitics. Right? Okay. Um, uh, so they are invested in culture in this way. So what is it? What is this thing that we that I want to recenter culture um, to this question of fascism studies, contemporary fascism studies? Or the emergence of a, uh, you know, a powerful transnational reactionary network. Um, uh, but most of my work is U.S. based. So you're asked for a simple one. It's hard. To, it's hard to do simple. But the word, the term microfascism, to me, answered some of this. Microfascism was a, a, a word that you could find scattered in the works of uh, Deleuze and Guattari. Um, and what they meant by it was something on this that is on the scale of um, everyday life, it's about the production of desire. It's the production of subjectivity. It's it's something that, temporally speaking, in their minds, sometimes precedes fully formed fascism, but it also sustains it um, in the in the way that state formations are organizations and accumulations of things that uh, uh, that preexisted. So the micro, to me, is not just small in scale, it's pervasive. It's something like microaggressions um, uh, insofar as it's an environment or an ecology, it's pervasive. Even if it's composed of um, microbes, it's more like a, the microbiome or something, right? So so all that to say, the reason for me to be drawn to it is that I think culture was not being discussed. Um, it was a counter to the ways of understanding this is, is again, as information, uh, as an information problem. The fascism is not an information problem. Um, it's, uh, it, it has to do with the production of selfhood. And specifically, I wanted to focus on gender in this book because um, it was also something that was being uh, uh, raised as a gateway to fascism, um, as a kind of first step. Misogyny is the first step to fascism. But what it wasn't doing in some of the discourses, this is public and academic, was saying this, it's not just like the gateway. There's something central about uh, patriarchy and the gendered order uh, that uh, of power that it um, that. Uh, it both is long-term and might be part of a long durée of fascism um, and is also very uh, acutely of the moment in ways that sustain, um, uh, not just recruit, but sustain uh, versions of the most uh, uh, repressive reactionary formations. Wow, thanks. And it is a terrific book, I should say to people. Uh, 2022, I think it came out, Jack, and very... Yeah poignant and present for us. So my last question prior to throwing to you is, I'm a 24-year-old, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed doctoral student arriving at Rutgers. 
I knock on Prof B's door and Prof B lets me in. And this might be metaphorical or literal. And uh, I say, hi, my name is, is X and I want to study Y, whatever Y might be. But somehow or other, Prof B's got the right room number for me. This is what I want to learn about. I'm in the doctoral program. What do I do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I, I love that version of the question. I, I've heard other variations um, uh, in in the podcast itself, right? Of uh, and over about the geoscientist and others, and so um, so I, I think the particular audiences are are important about how we explain what we do. Um, uh, and I've had versions of that question, um, um, some of which come through in, in the form of, well, what's your process? Like, and I'm like, you know, what is my process? Like, you know, um, uh, it's, it's, it was, it's always been kind of hard to articulate that, but, but here's, here's how I have answered that, that question in the past. Um, well, first I'll say how my process works is somewhat like the, like the example I gave earlier about, uh, John Mack and the alien abduction book, uh, on Oprah Winfrey, right? Some of it is some classic journalistic things called like the hunch, Right. I mean, you if you're if you're if you feel like you're on to something, um, that's really an important thing to sort of almost trust one's gut and say, like, okay, well, then the kinds of questions we want to ask about it and then the tools we want to answer those questions do need to become a part of that process. But but really, to me, it's like, what's what's the hunch you're working with? And so so when that when, when that X the person comes in and says, I want to study X, I'm like, OK, well, tell me a little bit more about how did you get there? Like, what is it about? this that is like the burning um component of it um uh that uh that you that you know for one thing you're not going to be able to it's not going to let go of you <laughs> for some years you're going to you're going to live with this question or this burning part um so uh you know how do you want to 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 live with it um uh so and, and that comes out of a moment where you know i studied conspiracy theories because maybe like what you were saying like uh, you know for me this was also part of some things I was kind of interested in. I was like, I was, I was getting subscriptions to Paranoia Magazine before I started studying. Right, I'm like, well, what's going on in the world? It's just like a curiosity. Anyway, so, so what is it about the this this X that really draws you? But then, what do you do? Okay, well, let's. I, I would do step by step. Like, okay, well, to find those tools is also to find a. A squad, really. I mean, it's to say a squad, right? I mean, I'm not going to say community, but who's who's the squad that also um, uh, has sort of worked on this? Uh, who was who has also struggled with this question or really wanted to to study this? And whether they are from centuries ago in some form, or they are, you know, they're also in a PhD program right now, and they're they're wanting to figure it out. And maybe we can find them at conferences, right? So so it's building that um, component of it. Um, and, you know, so, so, um, and, and then in terms of the things that often get called method, I mean, to me are like, well, do, do you think talking to people is going to help? Do you think, you know, do you, do you want to study like patterns in artifacts, uh, how historical is it? Right. So, so it's like how, how to get to that, um, uh, how, how to sort of both keep the fire burning, but also not let it spread out too far is the kind of methods question to me. Um, so, um, so what is going to be the, I don't know what, what is the, 
for the fireplace, the kind of blow thing. Anyway, uh, but the, uh, but yeah, what is the what is the tool that's going to uh, continue that? And um, but really, the, the the squad is important. Wonderfully put. Thank you very much, Prof. And uh, I will now edge back upwards from your office, uh, confused but happy. Right. <laughs> so. Jack, I wanted to just invite you, should you wish, to add or subtract things from our chat. Um, yeah, I guess I would. So, you know, I, I can't tell how um, at different moments how either if one wants to characterize, you know, statements as optimistic or pessimistic. Um, but uh, I would, you know, I do think that as much as the kind of what I see is the drift of uh, by by leftist cultural studies into um, either into marginalized pockets um, or something. I, I do think that there are. I think one of the things that gives me not hope, but just like an understanding and an ease with which the, to to think about what's happening in the world is that um, I, I do think that. Um, what do I say? This? Um, innovation and 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 sort of finding ways uh, of of creating whatever happiness and justice uh, is something that belongs to something broadly speaking called the left that the right will only try to imitate and incorporate and and uh if not repress so there's something about the innovative dimensions uh of the left that i think are really um really crucial i think the idea of humor um joy i think belongs in some ways uh, you know so the the work that I've seen in sort of more recent, like black cultural studies on black joy, on ways that that um, groups and communities that have um, uh, suffered tremendously um, are still affirming um, uh, not just survival, but thriving and love um, and life in the ways that, you know, what I see in Latin American feminism uh, in the works of folks like Veronica Gago and, and others to talk about. Uh, that so I think there's something I I, I do want to just you know um, uh, as the <laughs> um, uh, my my editor for on microfascism said you know Jack we probably should have called it against microfascism because really <laughs> that's kind of what the book is about like yeah maybe but um, but really you've got to understand what it is before we can you know have the anti microfascism or the micro anti fascism I can't remember how I talked about it but but the the idea that that um that to me is like still the it's not just a project we have to organize and do it's out there it's happening it's just for us as cultural studies analysts to have the perception to see um the ways that uh uh that kind of affirmative and justice oriented life and love oriented politics and political formations are actually um uh, making themselves and composing themselves out there Wonderful. That's very moving. Very moving, Jack. Thank you. And thank you so much for being so generous with your ideas and your time. As I've said with other people, and it's true of you as it is of them, I always learn a lot from reading your work. And I remember you were picking me up and driving me somewhere when we met 25 years ago, just about, and learning things then from you in our very first conversation in your car um, about uh, articulations to philosophy, I think. And today's been great, and I'm deeply appreciative. Well, thanks for thanks for doing this podcast, and thanks for all the work that you've done to get us 
into the intellectual and political spaces that we're in, uh, including myself. So I, I really appreciate um, you continuing this with this uh, podcast um, project. So thanks, Toby.